This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter 9 Santa Cruz, Patagonia, and the Falkland Islands. Contents Santa Cruz, Expedition Up the River, Indians, Immense Streams of Basaltic Lava. Fragments not transported by the river. Excavations of the valley. Condor habits of Cordillera. Erratic boulders of great size. Indian relics. Return to the ship. Falkland Islands. Wild horses. Cattle. Rabbits. Wolf-like fox. Fire made of bones. Manner of hunting wild cattle. Geology. Streams of stones. Scenes of violence. Penguins. Geese eggs of Doris, compound animals. Part 1. April 13th, 1834. The Beagle anchored within the mouth of the Santa Cruz. This river is situated about 60 miles south of Port St. Julian. During the last voyage, Captain Stokes proceeded 30 miles up it, but then, from the want of provisions, was obliged to return. Excepting what was discovered at the time, Scarcely anything was known about this large river. Captain Fitzroy now determined to follow its course as far as time would allow. On the 18th, three whaleboats started, carrying three weeks' provisions, and the party consisted of twenty-five souls, a force which would have been sufficient to have defied a host of Indians. With a strong flood tide and a fine day, we made a good run, soon drank some of the fresh water, and were at night nearly above the tidal influence. The river here assumed a size and appearance, which, even at the highest point we ultimately reached, was scarcely diminished. It was generally from three to four hundred yards broad, and, in the middle, about seventeen feet deep. The rapidity of the current, which, in its whole course, runs at the rate of from four to six knots an hour, is perhaps its most remarkable feature. The water is of a fine blue color, but with a slight milky tinge, and not so transparent as at first sight would have been expected. It flows over a bed of pebbles, like those which compose the beach and the surrounding plains. It runs in a winding course through a valley, which extends in a direct line westward. This valley varies from five to ten miles in breadth. It is bounded by stepped-formed terraces, which rise in most parts, one above the other to the height of five hundred feet, and have on the opposite sides a remarkable correspondence. April 19th. Against so strong a current, it was of course quite impossible to row or sail. Consequently, the three boats were fastened together, head and stern. Two hands left in each, and the rest came on shore to track. As the general arrangements made by Captain Fritzroy were very good for facilitating the work of all, and, as all had a share in it, I will describe the system. The party, including everyone, was divided into two spells, each of which hauled at the tracking line alternately for an hour and a half. The officers of each boat lived with, ate the same food, and slept in the same tent with their crew, so that each boat was quite independent of the others. After sunset, the first level spot where any bushes were growing was chosen for our night's lodging. Each of the crew took it in turns to be cook. Immediately the boat was hauled up, the cook made his fire, two others pitched the tent, the coxswain handed the things out of the boat, 
the rest carried them up to the tents and collected firewood. By this order, in half an hour, everything was ready for the night. A watch of two men and an officer was always kept, whose duty it was to look after the boats, keep up the fire, and guard against Indians. Each in the party had his one hour every night. During this day, we tracked but a short distance, for there were many islets, covered by thorny bushes, and the channels between them were narrow. April 20th. We passed the islands and set to work. Our regular day's march, although it was hard enough, carried us on average only ten miles in a straight line, and perhaps fifteen or twenty altogether. Beyond the place where we slept last night, the country is completely terra incognita, for it was there that Captain Stokes turned back. We saw in the distance a great smoke, and found the skeleton of a horse, so we knew that Indians were in the neighborhood. On the next morning, the 21st, tracks of a party of horse, and marks left by the trailing of a shizos, or long spears, were observed on the ground. It was generally thought that the Indians had reconnoitred us during the night. Shortly afterwards we came to a spot where, from the fresh footsteps of men, children, and horses, it was evident that the party had crossed the river. April 22nd. The country remained the same, and was extremely uninteresting. The complete similarity of the productions throughout Patagonia is one of its most striking characters. The level plains of arid shingle support the same stunted and dwarf plants, and in the valleys the same thorn-bearing bushes grow. Everywhere we see the same birds and insects. Even the very banks of the river and the clear streamlets which entered it are scarcely enlivened by a brighter tint of green. The curse of sterility is on the land, and the water flowing over a bed of pebbles partakes of the same curse. Hence the number of waterfowls is very scanty, for there is nothing to support life in the stream of this barren river. Patagonia, poor as she is in some respects, can, however, boast of a greater stock of small rodents than perhaps any other country in the world. Several species of mice are externally characterized by large, thin ears and a very fine fur. These little animals swarm amongst the thickets, in the valleys, where they cannot, for months together, taste a drop of water excepting the dew. They all seem to be cannibals, for no sooner was a mouse caught in one of my traps that it was devoured by others. A small and delicately shaped fox, which is likewise very abundant, probably derives its entire support from these small animals. The guanaco is also in his proper district. Herds of fifty or a hundred were common, and, as I have stated, we saw one which must have contained at least five hundred. The puma, with the condor and other carrion hawks in its train, follows and preys upon these animals. The footsteps of the puma were to be seen almost everywhere on the banks of the river, and the remains of several guanacos, with their necks dislocated and bones broken, showed how they had met their death. April 24th. Like the navigators of old when approaching an unknown land, we examined and watched for the most trivial sign of a change. The drifted trunk of a tree, or a boulder of primitive rock, was hailed with joy, as if we had seen a forest growing on the flanks of the Cordillera. The top, however, of a heavy bank of clouds, which remained almost constantly in one position, was the most promising sign, and eventually turned out a true harbinger. At first the clouds were mistaken for the mountains themselves, instead of the masses of vapor condensed by their icy summits. 
April 26th. We this day met with a marked change in the geological structure of the plains. From the first starting, I had carefully examined the gravel in the river, and for the last two days had noticed the presence of a few small pebbles of a very cellular basalt. These gradually increased in number and in size, but none were as large as a man's head. This morning, however, pebbles of the same rock, but more compact, suddenly became abundant, and in the course of half an hour we saw, at the distance of five of six miles, the angular edge of a great basaltic platform. When we arrived at its base, we found the stream bubbling among the fallen blocks. For the next twenty-eight miles, the river course was encumbered with these basaltic masses. Above that limit, immense fragments of primitive rocks, derived from its surrounding boulder formation, were equally numerous. None of the fragments of any considerable size had been washed more than three or four miles down the river below their parent source. Considering the singular rapidity of the great body of water in the Santa Cruz, and that no still reaches occur in any part, this example is the most striking one of the inefficiency of rivers in transporting even moderately sized fragments. The basalt is only lava, which has flown beneath the sea, but the eruptions must have been on the grandest scale. At the point where we first met this formation, it was 120 feet in thickness. Following up the river course, the surface imperceptibly rose, and the mass became thicker, so that, at 40 miles above the first station, it was 320 feet thick. What the thickness may be close to the Cordillera, I have no means of knowing, but the platform there attains a height of about 3,000 feet above the level of the sea. We must therefore look to the mountains of the great chain for its source, and worthy of such a source are streams that have flowed over the gently inclined bed of the sea to a distance of 100 miles. At first glance of the basaltic cliffs on the opposite sides of the valley, it was evident that the strata once were united. What power, then, has removed a whole line of country, a solid mass of very hard rock, which had an average thickness of nearly 300 feet, and a breadth varying from rather less than two miles to four miles? The river, though it has so little power in transporting even inconsiderable fragments, yet the lapse of ages might produce, by its gradual erosion, an effect of which it is difficult to judge the amount. But in this case, independently of the insignificance of such an agency, good reasons can be assigned for believing that this valley was formerly occupied by an arm of the sea. It is needless in this work to detail the arguments leading to this conclusion, derived from the form and the nature of the stepped-formed terraces on both sides of the valley, from the manner in which the bottom of the valley near the Andes expands into a great estuary-like plain, with sand hillocks on it, and from the occurrence of a few seashells lying in the bed of the river. If I had space, I could prove that South America was formerly here, cut off by a strait, joining the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans like that of Magellan. But it may yet be asked, how has the solid basalt been moved? Geologists formerly would have brought into play the violent actions of some overwhelming debacle, but in this case such a supposition would have been quite inadmissible, because the same step-like plains, with existing seashells lying on their surface, which front the long line of the Patagonian coast, sweep up on each side of the valley of the Santa Cruz. 
no possible action of any flood could thus have modelled the land, either within the valley or along the open coast, and, by the formation of such step-like plains or terraces, the valley itself had been hollowed out. Although we know that there are tides which run within the narrows of the Strait of Magellan, at the rate of eight knots an hour, yet we must confess that it makes the head almost giddy to reflect on the number of years, century after century, which the tides, unaided by a heavy surf, must have required to have corroded so vast an area and thickness of solid basaltic lava. Nevertheless, we must believe that the strata undermined by the waters of this ancient strait were broken up into huge fragments, and these lying scattered on the beach were reduced first to smaller blocks, then to pebbles, and lastly to the most impalpable mud, which the tides drifted far into the eastern and western oceans. With the change in the geological structure of the plains, the character of the landscape likewise altered. While rambling up some of the narrow and rocky defiles, I could almost have fancied myself transported back again to the barren valleys of the island of St. Jago. Among the basaltic cliffs I found some plants which I had seen nowhere else, but others I recognized as being wanderers from Tierra del Fuego. These porous rocks serve as a reservoir for the scanty rainwater, and consequently, on the line where the igneous and sedimentary formations unite, some small springs, most rare occurrences in Patagonia, burst forth, and they could be distinguished at a distance by the circumscribed patches of bright green herbage. April 27th. The bed of the river became narrower, and hence the stream more rapid. It here ran at the rate of six knots an hour. From this cause, and from the many great angular fragments, tracking the boats became both dangerous and laborious. This day I shot a condor. It measured from tip to tip of the wings eight and a half feet, and from beak to tail four feet. This bird is known to have a wide geographical range, being found on the west coast of South America from the Straits of Magellan, along the Cordillera, as far as eight degrees north of the equator. The steep cliff near the mouth of the Rio Negro is its northern limit on the Patagonian coast, and they have there wandered about four hundred miles from the great central line of their habitation in the Andes. Further south, among the bold precipices at the head of Port Desire, the condor is not uncommon, yet only a few stragglers occasionally visit the seacoast. A line of cliff near the mouth of the Santa Cruz is frequented by these birds, and about eighty miles up the river, where the sides of the valley are formed by steep basaltic precipices, the condor reappears. From these facts it seems that the condors require perpendicular cliffs. In Chile they haunt, during the greater part of the year, the lower country near the shores of the Pacific, and at night several roost together in one tree but in the early part of summer they retire to the most inaccessible parts of the inner cordillera, there to breed in peace. With respect to their propagation, I was told by the country people in Chile that the condor makes no sort of nest, but in the months of November and December lays two large white eggs on a shelf of bare rock. It is said that the young condors cannot fly for an entire year, and long after they are able, they continue to roost by night, and hunt by day with their parents. The old birds generally live in pairs, 
but among the inland basaltic cliffs of the Santa Cruz I found a spot where scores must usually haunt. On coming suddenly to the brow of the precipice, it was a grand spectacle to see between twenty or thirty of these great birds start heavily from their resting place and wheel away in majestic circles. From the quantity of dung on the rocks, they must long have frequented this cliff for roosting and breeding. Having gorged themselves with carrion on the plains below, they retire to these favorite ledges to digest their food. From these facts, the condor, like the gallinazo, must, to a certain degree, be considered a gregarious bird. In this part of the country, they live altogether on the guanacos, which have died a natural death, or, as more commonly happens, have been killed by the pumas. I believe, from what I saw in Patagonia, that they do not, on ordinary occasions, extend their daily excursions to any great distance from their regular sleeping places. The condors may oftentimes be seen at a great height, soaring over a certain spot in the most graceful circles. On some occasions I am sure that they do this only for pleasure, but on others the Chileno countryman tells you that they are watching a dying animal or the puma devouring its prey. If the condors glide down and then suddenly all rise together, the Chileno knows that it is the puma which, watching the carcass, has sprung out to drive away the robbers. Besides feeding on carrion, the condors frequently attack young goats and lambs, and the shepherd dogs are trained, whenever they pass over, to run out and, looking upwards, to bark violently. The chilenos destroy and catch numbers. Two methods are used. One is to place a carcass on a level piece of ground within an enclosure of sticks with an opening and when the condors are gorged, to gallop on horseback to the entrance, and thus enclose them. For when the bird has not space to run, it cannot give its body sufficient momentum to rise from the ground. The second method is to mark the trees, in which, frequently, to the number of five or six together, they roost, and they at night to climb up and noose them. They are such heaved sleepers, as I myself witnessed, that this is not a difficult task. At Valparaiso, I have seen a living condor sold for six pence, but the common price is eight or ten shillings. One which I saw brought in had been tied with rope and was much injured. Yet the moment the line was cut by which its bill was secured, although surrounded by people, it began ravenously to tear a piece of carrion. In a garden at the same place, between twenty and thirty were kept alive. They were fed only once a week, but they appeared in pretty good health. The Chileno countrymen assert that the condor will live and retain its vigor between five and six weeks without eating. I cannot answer for the truth of this, but it is a cruel experiment which very likely has been tried. When an animal is killed in the country, it is well known that the condors, like other carrion vultures, soon gain intelligence of it and congregate in an inexplicable manner. In most cases, it must not be overlooked that the birds have discovered their prey, and have picked the skeleton clean, before the flesh is in the least degree tainted. Remembering the experiments of M. Audubon on the little smelling powers of carrion hawks, I tried in the above-mentioned garden the following experiment. The condors were tied, each by a rope, in a long row at the bottom of a wall, and having folded up a piece of meat in white paper, I walked backwards and forwards, carrying it in my hand at the distance of about three yards from them, 
but no notice whatever was taken. I then threw it on the ground, within one yard of an old male bird. He looked at it for a moment with attention, but then regarded it no more. With a stick I pushed it closer and closer, until at last he touched it with his beak. The paper was then instantly torn off with fury, and at the same moment every bird in the long row began struggling and flapping its wings. Under the same circumstances it would have been quite impossible to have deceived a dog. The evidence in favor of and against the acute smelling powers of carrion vultures is singularly balanced. Professor Owen has demonstrated that the olfactory nerves of the turkey buzzard, Cathartes aura, are highly developed, and on the evening when Mr. Owen's paper was read at the Zoological Society, it was mentioned by a gentleman that he had seen the carrion hawks in the West Indies on two occasions, collect on the roof of a house when a corpse had become offensive from not having been buried. In this case, the intelligence could hardly have been acquired be sight. On the other hand, besides the experiments of Audubon, and that one by myself, Mr. Bachman has tried in the United States many varied plans, showing that neither the turkey buzzard, the species dissected by Professor Owen, nor the Galanazo find their food by smell. He covered portions of highly offensive offal with a thin canvas cloth, and strewed pieces of meat on it. These the carrion vultures ate up, and then remained quietly standing, with their beaks within the eighth of an inch of the putrid mass, without discovering it. A small rent was made in the canvas, and the offal was immediately discovered. The canvas was replaced by a fresh piece, and meat again was put on it, and was again devoured by the vultures without their discovering the hidden mass on which they were trampling. These facts are attested by the signatures of six gentlemen, besides that of Mr. Bachman. Often, when lying down to rest on the open plains, on looking upwards, I have seen carrion hawks sailing through the air at a great height. Where the country is level, I do not believe a space of the heavens, of more than fifteen degrees above the horizon, is commonly viewed with any attention by a person either walking or on horseback. If such be the case, and the vulture is on the wing at a height of between three and four thousand feet, before it could come within the range of vision, its distance in a straight line from the beholder's eye would be rather more than two British miles. Might it not thus readily be overlooked? When an animal is killed by the sportsman in a lonely valley, may he not all the while be watched from above by the sharp-sighted bird? And will not the manner of its descent proclaim throughout the district to the whole family of carrion feeders that their prey is at hand? When the condors are wheeling in a flock round and round any spot, their flight is beautiful, except when rising from the ground, I do not recollect ever having seen one of these birds flap its wings. Near Lima I watched several for nearly half an hour, without once taking off my eyes. They moved in large curves, sweeping in circles, descending and ascending without giving a simple flap. As they glided close over my head, I intently watched from an oblique position the outlines of the separate and great terminal feathers of each wing and these separate feathers, if there had been the least vibratory movement, would have appeared as if blended together, but they were seen distinct against the blue sky. The head and neck were moved frequently, and apparently with force, and the extended wings seemed to form the fulcrum on which the movements of the neck, body, and tail acted. If the bird wished to descend, the wings were for a moment collapsed, and when again expanded with an altered inclination, 
the momentum gained by the rapid descent seemed to urge the birds upwards with the even and steady movement of a paper kite in the case of any bird soaring its motion must be sufficiently rapid so that the action of the inclined surface of its body on the atmosphere may counterbalance its gravity the force to keep up the momentum of a body moving in a horizontal plane in the air in which there is so little friction cannot be great and this force is all that is wanted the movements of the neck and body of the condor we must suppose is sufficient for this however this may be it is truly wonderful and beautiful to see so great a bird hour after hour without any apparent exertion wheeling and gliding over mountain and river april twenty ninth from some high land we hailed with joy the white summits of the cordillera as they were seen occasionally peeping through their dusky envelope of clouds during the few succeeding days we continued to get on slowly for we found the river course very tortuous and strewn with immense fragments of various ancient slate rocks and of granite the plain bordering the valley has here attained an elevation of about eleven hundred feet above the river and its character was much altered the well-rounded pebbles of periphery were mingled with many immense angular fragments of basalt and of primary rocks the first of these erratic boulders which i noticed was sixty-seven miles distant from the nearest mountain another which i measured was five yards square and projected five feet above the gravel its edges were so angular and its size so great that i at first mistook it for a rock in situ and took out my compass to observe the direction of its cleavage the plain here was not quite so level as that nearer the coast but yet it betrayed no signs of any great violence under these circumstances it is i believe quite impossible to explain the transportal of these gigantic masses of rock so many miles from their parent source on any theory except by that of floating icebergs during the last two days we met with signs of horses and with several small articles which had belonged to the indians such as parts of a mantle and a bunch of ostrich feathers but they appeared to have been lying long on the ground between the place where the indians had so lately crossed the river and this neighborhood though so many miles apart the country appears to be quite unfrequented at first considering the abundance of the guanacos i was surprised at this but it is explained by the stony nature of the plains which would soon disable an unshod horse from taking any part in the chase nevertheless in two places in this very central region i found small heaps of stones which i do not think could have been accidentally thrown together they were placed on points projecting over the edge of the highest lava cliff and they resembled but on a small scale those near port desire may fourth captain fitzroy determined to take the boats no higher the river had a winding course and was very rapid and the appearance of country offered no temptation to proceed any further everywhere we met with the same productions and the same dreary landscape we were now one hundred and forty miles distant from the atlantic and about sixty from the nearest arm of the pacific the valley in this upper part expanded into a wide basin bounded on the north and south by the basaltic platforms and fronted by the long range of the snow-clad cordillera but we viewed these ground mountains with regret for we were obliged to imagine their nature and productions instead of standing as we had hoped on their summits 
Besides the useless loss of time, which an attempt to ascend the river and higher would have cost us, we had already been for some days on half allowance of bread. This, although really enough for a reasonable man, was, after a hard day's march, rather scanty food. A light stomach and an easy digestion are good things to talk about, but very unpleasant in practice. Fifth. Before sunrise we commenced our descent. We shot down the stream with great rapidity, generally at the rate of ten knots an hour. In this one day we effected what had cost us five and a half hard days' labor in ascending. On the eighth we reached the Beagle after our twenty-one days' expedition. Every one, excepting myself, had cause to be dissatisfied, but to me the ascent affronted a most interesting section of the great tertiary formation of Patagonia. On March 1st, 1833, and again on March 16th, 1834, the Beagle anchored in Berkeley Sound in East Falkland Island. This archipelago is situated in nearly the same latitude with the mouth of the Strait of Magellan. It covers a space of 120 by 60 geographical miles, and is little more than half the size of Ireland. After the possession of these miserable islands had been contested by France, Spain, and England, they were left uninhabited. The government of Buenos Aires then sold them to a private individual, but likewise used them, as old Spain had done before, for a penal settlement. England claimed her right and seized them. The Englishman who was left in charge of the flag was consequently murdered. A British officer was next sent, unsupported by any power and when we arrived we found him in charge of a population of which rather more than half were runaway rebels and murderers. The theater is worthy of the scenes acted on it. An undulating land with a desolate and wretched aspect is everywhere covered by a peaty soil of wiry grass of one monotonous brown color. Here and there a peak or ridge of gray quartz rock breaks through the smooth surface. Every one has heard of the climate of these regions. It may be compared to that which is experienced at the height of between one and two thousand feet on the mountains of North Wales, having, however, less sunshine and less frost, but more wind and rain. End of chapter 9, part 1